Resilient Disciples Podcast, powered by Awana. I'm your host, Ross Cochran. Thank you so much for being here. And man, oh man, do we have a good one for you today. I'm going to get the housekeeping out of the way right off the top because I'm so excited for you guys to hear what we talked about today. So please take the time to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast and tell someone that you're listening. The best way for this conversation to get out to as many people as possible is for it to be shared among those of you who are already invested in this conversation. So many of you have already done this, so thank you for that. This is not about boosting the brand of Resilient Disciples. This is about what we believe is the most critical conversation for the future of the church. But let's get to today. I recently had the privilege of sitting down with Wes Stafford and Valerie Bell. These two leaders have devoted their lives to making Resilient Disciples. Now, they may not have always called it that, What's clear in the conversation is that these two leaders, Valerie Bell, who is the CEO at Awana, and Wes Stafford, who is the President Emeritus at Compassion International, these two leaders have been radically focused on how they can be an advocate for children. Because no matter how big your ministry is, or how flashy your ministry is, or how much pressure you're putting on yourself as a parent right now, it is my belief that if God has asked these two to just be an advocate for children, odds are he's asking you to be an advocate for the children in your life. Whether you are a parent or a kidman leader, I would hope that calling, as serious as it is, allows you to shed some of the pressure in ways that we tend to overcomplicate what it means to just be there and be a loving, caring adult for a child. You're probably already doing this, And that's why we hope that these podcasts are just coming alongside you to encourage you to keep doing that work. So thank you again for listening. And here is episode 15 of the Resilient Disciples podcast. Well, my my, my greatest qualification to be an advocate for children is uh, I was one. (laughs) I spent spent 18 years of my life doing nothing but being a child. (laughs) You know, if I I do the math, that's like 9,500,000 minutes. Wow. Or that's all I did. Mm. Uh, I often talk to to, to leaders who say, you know, kids just aren't my thing. I'm not (laughs) comfortable around them. I don't understand them. And I'm like... You are a child expert. That's all you did for 18 years. Don't tell me you don't understand children. Yeah. So it really, it really started at the genesis of, uh, of uh, being born into a, into a missionary family, raised in a little African village, just one of the village boys. No other white children for like 100 miles in any way. Mm. The thing that got me excited about it was they actually had a saying where I came from, uh, it takes the village to raise a child. <laughs> now, this wasn't a plaque on the wall, and it yeah. wasn't a book that some <laughs> lady wrote a while back. Um, it was actually how they lived. The whole village thought every child belonged to them. Mm. And I had the great blessing of being just one of those village kids that belonged to everybody. Mm. Now, I was the wrong color. I uh, spoke mm-hmm. the wrong language at first. Uh, but it was what seized my heart. I could picture a bi- I, I, I saw it in a village, and I could picture a bigger world where every child mattered. Mm. Uh, you know, I never fell down as a little boy in that village without some African woman swooping in, picking <laughs> me up, you know, <laughs> dusting me off, drying my tears, sending me on my way. So I had a model from the very people that I've given my life in serving the poor. Uh, to how incredibly important children are. 
Amen. And so it, my genesis of being a child advocate really began uh, back there. That's so, there's a simplicity to that that's so refreshing. Because I think people think that they have to have some fancy title or some fancy degree and you be able to recognize that, oh, this is this is a thing I'm an expert in because I was one, um, is very refreshing. Everybody qualifies. <laughs> Everybody qualifies. Yeah. And Resilient, the book, we and around here, we use language like loving, caring adults. And you're describing oh, yeah. literally an entire community mm-hmm. of loving, caring Old adults. Village. That's amazing. Valerie, what were the loving, caring adults like in your life? Because I don't <laughs> think you were... Uh, the only white boy in, a, in an African no, village. No, I can't uh, say that I was. <laughs> Slightly different road. <laughs> um, I think that I needed somebody when I was about three years old. My mother had her nerve to have my brother. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I was displaced. I was a refugee child. And I was literally... It's really good to know how my four-year-old daughter is feeling right now. <laughs> I was really, literally going around the block, knocking on doors, asking for food, and trying to get into people's homes. That's amazing. <laughs> and there was an older woman next door. Uh, so my first girlfriend was 83 <laughs> and I was three years old. And th- why she let me into her life to the extent that she did when we wrote resilient, I explained this relationship. I would go over there whenever I felt like it. And she had a sign on her door that said, knock once and come in. And mm. I didn't, I couldn't sound out the K N O C K when you're in preschooler, <laughs> but the come in part I could, That's and so, so I would just knock and go in, and there she had me. And you know, uh, she was a wonderful storyteller. She was uh, one of the first women to graduate from college in Illinois. Oh, a very wow. smart woman, but very alone. There was also a picture on her mantle of a child, and that was her only child that she had lost in the Spanish flu epidemic, oh about a 12-year-old. So here, as I've gotten older, I'm beginning to get the whole picture of what God was doing, and I thought it was all about me. You know? <laughs> and as I'm older, I'm realizing she was extremely lonely. Mm. You know, She was by herself, and suddenly this little girl shows up, loves the stories, uh, takes naps with her. I know that that sounds just, you know, child protection. (laughs) People are going to be tearing their hair out. It was a different time, but Mm. I would take my naps with her and we'd play this game, who can go to sleep the fastest, you know? And and I was young enough, I fell for that. But the point of it was, (laughs) (laughs) the point of it was she basically loved me to Jesus. She absolutely loved me to Jesus. I was an early uh, adopter (laughs) of Christ and have always felt that was the best decision I ever made. Amen. And so just her um, willingness and openness to me, that was what I needed at that time. That's so good. Yeah. Well, I think what was remarkable in both of your answers was how much your faces lighted up thinking back to those childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. Because I think that so many people who listen to this, whether they're parents or they're kidmen leaders, um, they have this feeling that what they're doing isn't enough, that their ministry isn't big enough, that their program isn't enough um, or fancy or flashy enough. And yet both of those situations that you described have nothing to do with programming. They have nothing to do with the flashiness that we try to establish a ministry. They have to do with just being there with you as a child. And that's how... Both of you, I love that phrase, by the way. I don't. I think it's the first time I've heard you say that, but that feels so natural. She loved you to Jesus. Like yes. they both, those adults loved you to Jesus. Interesting that the, the stories are almost identical, but radically different. Yeah. Opposite sides of the world. <laughs> but it's almost always uh, someone 
loving and believing in a child until they learn to believe in themselves. Mm. I maintain, and I've heard this said, uh, there's always one moment in childhood when the door opens and lets the future in. Mm. And I argue that if God will stand a child in front of you for as little as one minute, you might be the one that says the right thing, does the right thing. It might be a divine appointment that you absolutely change the world for that child. So yes, programs, it can happen in the context of that. But I think as, as adults who, are, who care about children, we need to be alert uh, to these divine appointments. And you never know, uh, you know when you're making a lifelong memory or yeah. launching a whole different path. Yeah, and I, I think when people look back at their own childhood experiences, the things we're all experts in, yeah. they, they that How that's already played out. Child? I believe I was a child for 18 years. 18 years. It's weird. Um, uh, some people will tell you that I, I'd still, you know, other than the facial hair, it's still the same thing. But that people have looked back at those experiences and they can point to those moments. They can point to those moments where the future came in. And, and often, you know, I'm not, we're not trying to dismiss programming, right? We're not trying to dismiss structure, but that in a world that is becoming increasingly frenetic, increasingly busy, that there is a tremendous profoundness and otherness that comes with an adult slowing down to be at a child's pace. You said something in a documentary that I don't think people will have had a chance to see yet when they listen to this, mm -hmm. but in the context of resilient, yeah. um, that sort of goes into the other main point that I wanted to talk with the both of you about, which is uh, this conversation around 2050, which is a handle that we've used to describe the future of the faith. You pointed out that at some point, these children are going to grow up and they're going to be the mayors. They're going to be the people in the corner offices. And we as adults aren't going to be let in to the adult who right now may be having that minute with the child. How can they both have that perspective in mind while also being able to be present? Because I think when I think about all the different ways that I'm screwing up my children, <laughs> I think, you know, I get too nervous about, Oh man, I got to make sure I get this right. So that they let me into their corner office and I wind up missing that moment. That's already right there in front of me. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it comes, uh, actually in the moment. I, I wrote I wrote this book just a minute. Yes. And I make the case that there are moments like this. And I remember uh, sitting down, this got published about five years ago, sitting down with my own two daughters and saying, so was there a minute as I was raising you, as I was your father, um, that, uh, that you remember? And uh, I was expecting them to come up with these great, oh, I never did when you did said this and did this. And they didn't remember any of the really profound things that I deliberately did to shape their little hearts and minds. They remembered the odd moments when I did or said something that I wasn't even aware that they were watching mm. or that they were absorbing, but they were making lifelong memories. And so I think you have to be careful not to overthink it. What has to happen is we have to actually love children when you really love children, and if you've worked with them like Val and I have for many, many years, anytime I look at a little child, my mind races forward 20 years. What do I, am I looking at a future doctor? Am I looking at a future lawyer? What am I, what am I dealing with here? And what a, what a sacred responsibility it is uh, to not necessarily come up with a grand slam moment that changes their life, but to add 
to the, uh, you know, the, the beauty was there wasn't any one mm. woman in my village that was, you know, the champion of how I turned out. Mm. Uh, but it was many people in little tiny ways. And so it's kind of like the gospel. We don't always get to present the whole four spiritual laws and lead a person <laughs> to Christ. We all do our part. Some of them plant, some cultivate, some water, and the harvest happens. And um, what we have to realize is uh, children children always have their intent out. You never know when you're making a lifelong memory. Yeah. Uh, but it can happen uh, in a very short time, in, in just a few, uh, just a few minutes. Yeah. So Ross, um, talking about twenty fifty, tell me yeah. the age of your kids. Uh, four and six months. Has it occurred to you ever in the raising of these little ones that they could be headed for a penitentiary? Yeah, it um, does. If you've got <laughs> absolutely, yeah. um, and sometimes I'd be taking them there. No, yeah. uh, <laughs> it occurs to every parent. You know, this kid could really go south. Yeah, especially when they're three and they're throwing the temper tantrums and the mm-hmm. big nose and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, Twenty fifty gives another dream, another potential to that child's future. Twenty fifty says right. to the church, you know, we're going to raise a generation of fearless disciples. And they're going to be the most amazing generation of Christians we've ever raised. So, you know, we have uh, the greatest generation that was my parents' generation. And then the boomers, they didn't give us that great title. (laughs) They're still not over us. They never crossed their mind. (laughs) uh, I think we were called other things, you know. I want to name this generation of children like your children as the most fearless most in love with Jesus generation that has ever come through the church and that the church of 2050 will be an awesome thing to behold and to be a part of. So, um, yeah. So when you say 2050 to me, I'm, I'm not only thinking kids, uh, although that's the basis, that's the foundation, but I'm thinking of this beautiful worldwide church that has so learned to be radically lovingly placed in the culture that all around them, uh, people are drawn to them, that they are such a light. As our culture gets darker in the world, not just here in the States, but in the world, we have this amazing opportunity uh, to shine. And it's not going to take a lot to shine as the culture gets darker, really, you know? Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Want to help shape the future of faith? The Make Resilient Disciples Tour is coming to a city near you. You will engage with other ministry influencers, and these conversation-driven gatherings will highlight the importance of relational discipleship and the fearless future of the church. Hear the research. Discover fresh approaches. Come and look beyond the traditional tactics of everyday ministry and commit to developing resilient child disciples. Find out when these crucial conversations are taking place in a city near you at resilientdisciples.com backslash tour. There's this tone of hopefulness that comes with being in this world with children. Children have this, they're closer to God's original design. They don't have the cynicism that adults carry. And the world would do well to pay attention to that hopefulness. Mm-hmm. I love that, that the, you know, it's not going to take a lot to shine. What I hope that the person who listens to this hears, if you two are business leaders, it would be very normal for you to be drawn to the lev- the long resume of uh, that makes your biography so long, but that both of you have recognized that this world that we we are now heading into looks drastically different than the world that you came from. So how did we as a church get to this place that um, 
if we don't do something now, if we're not having this conversation now, the church of 2050 is going to look a lot different than what you just described, Valerie. Well, I think the world has so radically changed. It's been very difficult for the church to keep up with what that has meant in children's lives. Mm. And so Resilient it looks at some, several of the mountains, you know, the uh, decline of the family, the loss of vitality in the church. You know, 50, let's just go back a little bit. 50% of the children being raised today will be raised in broken homes. Mm-hmm. There's an epidemic of fatherlessness that comes from that. Um, the... Uh, the decline in church attendance, you can see that it's not, it does not hold the primary allegiance that it did like Wes, when you and I were growing up with Mm -hmm. our families. Um, And, you know, so, and then you look at these changing things and the, um, the influx or the flood, I think you could say of technology Mm -hmm. that all of a sudden, you know, the world used to be out there. It was the movies, it was drinking, it was dancing. It was these kind of exterior things. Now the world has come with an enormous velocity right into the palm of our kids' hands. Mm -hmm. And it's extremely influential. Uh, We weren't prepared for that. We didn't know how to put boundaries around it or how to guard our children's hearts with the things, uh, extreme secularism that they would be uh, exposed to. And so we're in catch-up mode. We're in catch-up mode a little bit right now, trying to understand that, whoa, if we are not careful, um, the statistics that we're beginning to see about kids leaving the church, 64% of them, you know, to me indicates that the church was unaware of how to help them navigate the culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we want to correct that. We mm-hmm. want to be sure that we are answering the, we are answering the questions they're asking. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, uh, I think it happened while we weren't paying attention mm. uh, for a long, long time. Kind of like the frog in the kettle, you know, the water <laughs> gradually up until suddenly we realized we have a major crisis. Our kids are, left behind. Yeah. Children have become kind of a second rate mandate uh, to the church. You know, um, uh, 85% of people who give their lives to Christ do it while they are children. Mm. Uh, Mm. Missiologists tell us between the ages of four and 14. Uh, I'm not a rocket scientist, but if (laughs) I wanted to bring this world to Christ, it would make some sense to hone in on children with that reality. Line up 10 people and ask them, when did you give your life to Christ? Eight of them will say uh, between Three, the four, age of four and 14. Yeah. And yet, uh, only 10% of uh, mission efforts are spent on children. 10%. Wow. And only 15% of the typical church budget is spent on bringing children to Christ and discipling children to Christ, even though every other person running through the halls of that church is a little child. So how could we have missed this? Mm. And I think the, the, the way we missed this is that there was a spiritual battle going on for each little mm-hmm. child's soul that we weren't aware of. They were small, so we thought they were unimportant. My book is uh, too small to ignore. You know, yeah. we usually say, you know, I got I got this splinter and and then it got infected and it finally just got too big. I had to do something. I'm like, well, they're too small to ignore. Amen. You can't uh, you can't miss on that. And. Um, and uh, so we need, uh, we actually need a paradigm shift. We need to think differently. I think back to, uh, you know, 150 years ago, uh, Val and I both uh, graduated from Moody Bible Institute, and D.L. Moody was a great evangelist at that time. And um, 
he, the story goes, he, uh, he came out of an evangelistic service one night. Uh, and as he climbed in bed, his wife, Emma, said, well, how did it go tonight, Dwight? She apparently didn't go. And he says, well, pretty good. Two and a half converts. <laughs> and Emma said, oh, that's a cute way to put it. How old was the child? And he said, no, 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 Emma. Oh. Two children and one adult. <laughs> the children have their whole lives in front of them. Amen. It's the adult who's half gone. Yeah. And on his deathbed, this great evangelist said, if I had my life to live over again, mm. I would dedicate it entirely in ministry to children. Mm. That's great. Well, you go out into the Christian world today and you look at the evangelists, you look at pastors, you look at college professors, you look at missionaries. You don't have a whole lot of people saying that. And that's why resilience is important. And that's why I'm a part of Awana. I'm I'm pushing that we've we got to absolutely think differently. we got to act differently. We've got to feel differently. And I think the way, the way it happened is uh, we weren't paying attention. Mm-hmm. That's great. I but agree. I guarantee you all of the hosts of heaven were paying attention. Amen. Uh, when one child walks in, we're told, all of heaven stands and rejoices. And when one child falls in, all of hell, the hosts rattle their chains in, in victory. And there's a battle over our head that we can't even see that uh, we as a church, we need to awaken to this. Yeah. And it's not too late. Uh, there's remarkable things going on to be reason to be hopeful, including Awana and compassion and resilient and too small to ignore. Uh, there's a movement going yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you both have, uh, again, to use language from resilient, you, you both have what people would call radical love for children. And I know in a much different context, the book uses the term radical love. For someone who has radical love, whose heartbeats beat like yours, but who at the moment feels like that radical love isn't enough, how do both of you give them hope that their radical love is enough? How do we prove or show that radical love is actually enough to save a life? I don't think you uh, you beat people down with uh, with the statistics of it all. You've got to appeal to uh, to their hearts. For example, the issue that I have fought all my life is children in poverty. Mm-hmm. 43 years ago, when I began with Compassion, uh, we had the statistic from the United Nations that 47,000 children die every day of preventable causes. We even had T-shirts that said, 47,000, mm-hmm. ask me. Well, now 40 years later, uh, that number Although the population of the world has tripled, that number is down to nineteen thousand a day. Mm. Oh my goodness! We have cut we have cut poverty more than in half, and so when I'm out advocating for children, but mm-hmm. advocating for children in poverty, I will often say uh, it has been cut in half. We thought poverty was absolutely insurmountable; it can, it couldn't be done, mm. and yet we have cut it in half. And when you look at the year 2050, we will have pushed extreme poverty all the way off the planet. Oh, wow. When I talk to, uh, to college students, I will often say to them, you know what? We're going to do this with or without you. But my hope is that someday in 2050, when your little granddaughter climbs up on your lap and says, Mama, what did you do when two-thirds of the world was poor and hungry? Mm-hmm. And when you say, well, it was such a magnitude of a problem, the statistics paralyzed us. That's going to sound real lame to your daughter (laughs) who is living in the world that that has been achieved. Amen. So 
don't miss out on this. Yeah, this exciting. is your chance. And mm-hmm. I think that's only one instance of a better world coming yeah. around the corner. Mm-hmm. And so I think, uh, you know, you can, you can scare people, you can badger people, or you, or you can inspire people that this is doable. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's, in any time you're working with children, if you are not dealing with hope and the future, then uh, you're approaching it all wrong. That's great. What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> um, the question was about radical love and the person who feels like radical love isn't enough right now. Well, you know, that's interesting because um, I would think that a lot of people, even listening to this, there's something happening as they listen and they're responsive. They are resonant. It, it, it hits something maybe they didn't have words for before. And um, that is what I would call Holy Spirit calling you. Mm. Uh, and those are the things that we really need to pay attention to because out of those kinds of promptings, God directs our path and he teaches us how to be radical lovers. We don't all start out like radical lovers. In fact, I don't even think you have to like a kid to be called into ministering to that child. Amen. Because sometimes you get adopted (laughs) against your will, which is what happened to me. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had uh, this neighborhood of kids, uh, 24 uh, of them under 12 years old. I was the only stay-at-home mom. I was completely overwhelmed. I didn't like any of them, even my own kids. You know, it was just awful. And I had this dream. Yeah. Okay, I listen to these kinds of things. These are holy, what I would call Holy Spirit promptings. And I was saying to God, I'd want another baby. I want a girl. I only have boys. I want a girl, you know. And uh, and in this dream, I thought God said to me, have you looked on your front porch lately? And I thought, this is cool. One dream and I'm going to have a baby in a pink blankie. And it's going to be fabulous, you know. So I'm still dreaming. I throw open my front door. There's no little basket with a pink blankie and yeah. a little fuzzy-haired blonde baby girl. <laughs> there is a little dark-haired boy. I only see him from the backside, but I recognize him immediately. He makes my life hellacious. <laughs> He's a bad kid. He's a bad influence, and his mother is worse. Yeah. <laughs> and I said very disappointedly to God, oh, that little boy. Mm. He's here all the time. (laughs) And God said, well, why haven't you asked him in? Mm. And I didn't have an answer for that. And so I asked this little dark-haired boy in. um, And when I did, I had the same feeling that I had when I brought our two sons home from the hospital. It was new mother joy. Mm. I I woke up crying. See, God was leading me into a pathway, mm-hmm. and uh, he was showing me what he wanted me to do in the world, and it was against my feelings. <laughs> he didn't <laughs> care what I felt about these children. He was, sh- he was show me, showing me the world's need through one child. Amen. And so I mm. think radical love grows. I think we fall in love kind of incrementally. And maybe there's a child who comes into our life through church or something, and God opens our eyes to the need. We, we're not radical lovers until we feel the need. Mm. And when we start feeling the need, God can really start using us. Yeah. Yeah. 
And you don't have to run off and start some great organization. It starts with the very next child that yeah. God stands uh, before you, even for just a minute. Amen. Yeah, that's exactly how it starts. And then you discover, wow, uh, maybe I maybe I can make a difference. Maybe I can change things for at least one child. Yeah. And, you know, like I say, you don't never know for sure when you're making a memory that transforms a life or, or is a lifelong uh, memory from that moment, but um, that's the place to start. Thank you so much for listening, especially all the way till the end. Odds are you and I haven't met in real life, but if you're still here, I know that this conversation around making resilient disciples is incredibly important to you. And my number one goal with this podcast is that it helps inform, equip, and inspire you to keep going in that mission. That's why I want to keep encouraging you to interact with the show. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. That's great. But you can also email the show directly at podcasts at awana.org or leave a voicemail for us at 630-289-5353. Let me know what you want to talk about. I may talk to you directly. I may have you on the podcast, or I may bring in experts to tackle an issue that you've been wrestling with for a really long time. I'm so grateful that this gets to be my gig, but from that gratitude, I want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to help you be the advocate for kids that God made you to be. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. The Resilient Disciples podcast is powered by Awana. Awana is a global nonprofit organization fueled by the generous support of individuals, churches, and organizations, as well as resource sales to accomplish our mission of equipping leaders to reach kids with the gospel and engage them in lifelong discipleship. The podcast is mixed, edited, produced, and hosted by Ross Cochran. Thanks to Kevin Orris and Phil Wallace for making this podcast happen. Go to ResilientDisciples.com for resources and many more of these conversations.